0: Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Angel. In the mid-1800s, George and Mary Mueller felt a call from God to open their home in Bristol, England to kids who didn't have any parents. So, naturally, they took in 30 children. Very quickly running out of space, they opened three more homes on the same street, housing another 100. Neighbors kept complaining about the noise, Seems pretty fair. So they decided to build a bigger building. And after a few years, they were caring for more than 1,700 children in five homes. It's pretty wild, huh? But that's not all. Believing so strongly in God's goodness, they never asked for donations. But not because they had wealth. They were called As they read their Bible, it seemed clear that God's heart was for the orphan. So George and Mary would pray and then act in faith that God would be the kind of God he claimed to be. And things started happening around them. Like the architect who made that new building did it for free. In fact, all five of their eventual homes were built on donations and generosity. They never asked anyone for money besides God. They also didn't ask anyone to help feed the kids because, they figured, they already asked God. And if God couldn't do it, how could anybody else? So one of my favorite stories from Mueller's memoir is when he sits all the kids down for breakfast, only there's no food to eat. Uh, But he opens anyway in prayer, thanking God for his extravagant generosity, for providing, for loving each person so beautifully. And the kids weren't confused, as you can imagine, this kind of thing happened. And a few moments later, a knock at the door. It's the town baker. He couldn't sleep last night because he was worried that the kids didn't have enough food to eat. So he wondered if they could make use of this truckload of bread that's sitting out front. But that wasn't it. Another knock came shortly after. It was the milkman. His cart broke down right out front and he was afraid that all the milk would spoil. Could the kids use it? God is good and faithful and generous, is he not? And while our emphasis in stories like these tends to be the recipients, what catches my attention here is the givers. Who were they and what made them do what they did? Yes, the Muellers asked God to provide, but God did not manifest bread in the wilder- like he did in the wilderness with the Israelites. God did not speak buildings into existence. God used people, ordinary bakers, ordinary architects, and ordinary families. How did the baker know that they needed food? What made that architect give his services for free? Why did the milkman not try to sell the milk to the orphanage or to the neighborhood for that matter? Why did these people and the people of God for millennia willingly sacrifice their hard earned money and absorb incredible costs for the sake of strangers? And why do I still wrestle every single week to believe that there is enough? If you've been around here for the last few weeks, you know we're deep in a series called Unforced Rhythms of Grace in which we're walking through nine core practices that help us Follow Jesus. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Gavin. I'm really excited to continue our conversation today. In this series, we've been uh, seeing that the things we want in life, the things that we would naturally orient our entire lives around unchecked, things like being productive, becoming comfortable, and building a life generally free from pain, those things are actually unlikely to form in us what Jesus called life to the full. To get the life of Jesus, we have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. And that's what we're after with these nine practices. How did Jesus orient his life around the kingdom? Now, there isn't anything magical about these practices. On their own, they accomplish little. But by and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow through them in transformation. These nine practices are merely a means to an end. They're means, they're simply tools to the end of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. So up for today is everyone's favorite topic to talk about at church. In fact, it's the one that you pray the pastor does not talk about when you have brought a guest. We are talking about the practice of generosity. And while there are many kinds of generosity, many forms of generosity, like service, the practice of giving ourselves away, our time, our relationships, which we talked about last week, I want to focus today on generosity with money. Because money is something we all have, it's something we all want, and it seems to be running our world. So it's really important that we as disciples of Jesus, as a family, should talk about how we engage it, specifically we want to become a community of contentment in a culture of consumerism through the practice of generosity. Let's jump in and look at a few times the Bible talks about generosity. Starting in the very, very, very beginning, in the first few pages, we read about God creating the universe around us by bringing order to and overcoming chaos, This chaos is subdued by the overflowing love within and between the Godhead, the three and one, the Trinity. God didn't need us, but God really wanted us. And so we exist out of the overflow of that desire. So the first principle of generosity that we learn in the scriptures is that at its very best, our generosity is only ever a response to God's generosity, a response to a generosity that is so at core of who God is, a generosity that opted to share existence and consciousness and relationship with us. The Apostle John picks up on this theme towards the end of his life, writing, we love because he first loved us, meaning that any source of the love that I know or the generosity that I engage with can only be responsive. But things go well until they don't. One day, these first humans who were given life out of God's overflowing generosity opt to meet their own needs in their own way, something the authors of Scripture will later call sin. Now, this really old understanding of sin as meeting my own needs, my own way, is really helpful because it speaks not just to an action, but to an intention. And when it comes to generosity, intention is at the very heart. It's sort of the the secret sauce, if you will. Now, while these first humans disrupt the gift of generosity that poured over into their very existence, it's really crucial for us to understand that God's generosity was not broken in that exchange. What was broken was their ability to receive God's generosity, And this matters because while God's people are now outside of Eden, God's plan for fixing what is broken in every human heart is still his generosity. So flipping over a few pages to Genesis 12, God calls this couple, Abram and Sarai, and among other things, he blesses them saying, you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is revealing another, one of the most fundamental underlying principles of generosity here. We, you and I, are blessed in order to bless. We are given from God in order to give from God. And so our city, our relationships, our church community should be thriving by means of our generosity. And can we say that? Can we say that we, as a church, as a family, are blessed in order to bless the people and city of Portland. The Hebrew Bible continues setting up the nation of the Israelites with a tithe system. Tithing was the practice of acknowledging God's generosity to me by returning to him some of those gifts. It was to, re- to worship God by redistributing a portion of my income, my wealth, my crop yield in order to ensure that everyone in their nation would know the provision of the Lord. And while Christians in the New Testament relate to the tithe system differently than uh, the ancient Israelites did, God's heart for generosity, as we'll find out, doesn't change in Jesus or the early church. If anything, it might actually increase a little bit. Tithing, we read, we see, or giving 10%, seems to become a floor for the early church and not a ceiling. All through the Bible, from beginning to end, we learn that God really cares about how his people engage with money and wealth and generosity. But why? Why does God care so much? Well, the authors of the scriptures seem to think that having money and stuff is not inherently wrong, but it can be dangerous. It's an obstacle, it can be a hindrance that can keep them from flourishing. Like alcohol, or sex, or food, money can absolutely be used as a tool for good and human flourishing, but it can oh so easily corrupt our very lives. So generosity reminds us where our allegiance belongs. We don't practice generosity in order to get God's attention or God's favor. We're not earning anything when we give. We practice generosity because we already have God's attention. We already have God's favor. Generosity is a form of worship. And as with most things in God's kingdom, there's an unbreakable connection between what God is doing in me and what God is doing for the sake of the world. So the impact of generosity then has to be both individual and communal. Jesus makes a really big deal about what happens in the heart, saying that it's not just adultery that destroys us, but lust. It's not just murder, but hatred. He's speaking to the state of our heart, to the fact that our desires are bent and broken and in need of transformation that if we aren't careful, our very desires may rule over us. We, friends, can become enslaved to our desires. So the practice of generosity is not that God needs our money or time or effort or resources. It's that God wants our hearts. And as Jesus will say soon, our money wants our hearts too. For Jesus, our relationship to our money was a matter of life and death. Whether explicitly talking about it or using it as a metaphor, Jesus mentions money more than any other topic uh, in his teachings. Somewhere around one-third of what he said involved money. Some scholars even say that 40% of his parables involved money. Jesus, at once, knew money's potential for good and for evil. Jesus reminds, uh, he seemed to know that at its root, money was just another form of power. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us, Jesus' relationship to power was, quote, to make himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. When it came to money and generosity, Jesus, as he did a lot, simply restated what was already true about life in God's kingdom but he did it in a way that turned everything that their culture and ours believes on its head. So let's take a a brief tour of a few stories, specifically all in Matthew's Gospel, if you wanna turn there. We'll start in Matthew chapter six. In the middle of Jesus' most famous teaching, what we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five through seven, right in the middle, he talks about how our treasure, that is the stuff that matters the most to us, should be in God's kingdom and not on this earth. Unless we soften his words as poetic or something else, he ends by saying really clearly, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, friends, you and I, we cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is saying here that money and God both demand worship. But we can only pick one because they are mutually exclusive. They will not share the throne of your heart. You have to pick one. In another situation in Matthew 22, if you want to flip there, the religious teachers of the day were trying to trap Jesus, as they often were, asking him if people should pay a particular tax or not. And it wasn't just any tax, it was a particularly unjust tax, one that only non-citizens had to pay. And so they asked Jesus, "Do, do people pay this tax, trying to trap him? In verse 19, Jesus asks them for a coin, and he holds it up, and he asks them whose image is on it. And they said, Caesar's. But think about our money, who's on our money? It's the president's, right? It's Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. And then Jesus says a really wild thing. In to- verse 21 he says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What Jesus is saying here is should really impact the way that we think about money. Uh, Think about the riddle Jesus is setting up. If the coin had Caesar's image and therefore should be returned to Caesar, what has God's image and therefore should be returned to God? Us. We do. Caesar can have all the money he wants. I don't care. We don't need it, Jesus says. But he cannot have you. We belong to to God, and in God we have and will have all we need. So Caesar gets our money, sure, I don't care, but God alone gets us. Now, we could go on and on, but there's one more story I want us to look at. Uh, Flip back two chapters, Matthew 19, and in this story a rich man comes to Jesus and asks what he needs to do, quote, to get eternal life. Unfortunately for this man, Jesus uh, doesn't seem to always give straight answers. Uh, going to the heart behind the question, uh, Jesus offers not an answer, but a process. He tells the man, well, you must keep the law. Okay, which ones, he, sa- he asks. Jesus lists a few, and this man says, well, yeah, I've, I've kept all of those, but he could kind of see in Jesus that maybe that wasn't totally it. So he asks, what do I still lack? Now, notice this guy's philosophy of accumulation. Jesus never had this. Jesus' life was about divesting. It was never about accumulating. It was not a spirituality of upward mobility up and to the right, but a downward mobility. What do, you, what do you lack? Lack isn't your problem. It's that all of your money and all of your stuff are keeping you from truly loving your neighbor. In verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to be whole, your, verse, your Bible probably says perfect, but that word means whole. If you want to be whole, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Every time Jesus says this in the Gospels, come follow me, people leave everything to follow him. Every time, that is, except this one. This is the only time we read in the gospels that somebody does not immediately drop everything and follow Jesus. And now while we don't know what he will do, Matthew found it important enough to include in the text that we have today that at this very moment, the man walked away. Suggesting how slippery and easy it is to fall into the cruel enslavement of wealth. This man goes away sad at which point, Jesus turns to his disciples and notes how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and I don't think he's mocking this guy here. I don't think he's even criticizing him. I think Jesus is actually being really tender. I think he turns to his disciples and said, do you see the sadness? Do you see it? Wealth is one of the enemy's primary ways of numbing us into ruin, of stealing and killing and destroying. Jesus' heart was sad for this man as well. Why is it hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God? Because it's possible to be anesthetized into believing that we are satisfied. That's why. And because it's possible to be equally numbed to the needs of those around us. And money is really good at both. But the kingdom of God wasn't about the full or the satisfied. The kingdom of God was all about those who are hungry and thirsty and in need. Now, at this point we all wanna uh, say Jesus doesn't ask all of his disciples to sell everything which is true, Jesus says some pretty wild stuff. He could have said that, he didn't say that. He seemed okay to, for Zacchaeus to keep half of his stuff and only give up half. He seemed fine that Peter had a house apparently. And then there were some fishermen who followed him that after they thought Jesus was dead for good they went back to their boats that they apparently owned. We don't have to give up all of our stuff, right? It's about the heart posture, not just the actual money, right? In his commentary on this passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner totally agrees. He said, yeah, you're totally right. All these points are relevant, they're valid, but he goes on to say, we believe that Jesus intends every disciple in every generation to hear this command to the rich man as a command to them to do something with their assets that will indicate that their discipleship to Jesus is real. All of us are addressed by Jesus in this story at the point of our possessions. And all are asked to say, is it I, Lord? Readers should be very careful to avoid the particularist, the only the rich man interpretation of this text. In every disciple, something needs to change economically if we are to follow Jesus' word with integrity. Very spicy scholar Robert Gundry agrees here and says that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all of their possession, gives comfort only to the kind of people he would have issued that command to. (laughs) He said it, not me. Finally, one extra zinger from an Anabaptist uh, sociologist, Donald Craybill, just to emphasize here. We obviously cannot conclude that the Christian's economic practice is a peripheral fringe to the gospel. It, what we do with our money, it stands at the very core of the kingdom way. Conversion, which does not involve economic change, is not authentic conversion. So, no, Jesus didn't ask every one of his disciples to get rid of every cent, selling everything that they had, and give it to the poor. He could have, but he didn't. There isn't anything inherently wrong with having money, and well-off disciples of Jesus with the maturity to hold their resources with an open hand have historically enabled the church to thrive through their generosity, like the wealthy women who financed much of Jesus' own ministry on earth. It's not that wealth is bad, it's that most of us aren't mature to steward it well, myself included. Most of us aren't mature enough to hold wealth and also not worship it. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you have money or make money, you're definitely in sin. That would be silly, that's all of us here. What I'm saying is that all of us have to wrestle with Jesus' teachings. Because again, Jesus seems to be saying what the scriptures seem to say, which is that having money and stuff is not inherently wrong, but it can be dangerous. Now, to be super clear, Jesus' disciples didn't like any of that more than we did. So after telling them in verse 23, truly I tell you, Jesus is saying, I am telling you the truth. Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he emphasizes it with a hyperbole. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a big giant camel to go through the eye of a really small needle. It's easier for that to happen than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples are very blown away. They're astonished and say, Well, well who, who can be saved then? If that's the case, who can be saved? And in verse 26, he tells them, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. As Donald Craybill uh, explains that statement that Jesus just made, it doesn't mean that God will miraculously drag rich people through the kingdom gates. Rather, it means that by the grace of God, even a rich man can be freed from the demonic powers of wealth. That's the mercy of God. But before we start a protest against the 1% or get angry at corporations, we must see things the way Jesus did. It's so easy to look up the economic ladder, isn't it? Comparing ourselves to those who are wealthier than us, to be convicted on their behalf about how much money they're making and how much money they're keeping. And as long as I'm like somewhere underneath that, I'm probably fine. I've got kids after all, they require money. But I wonder if Jesus wouldn't invite us to look the other way, down the economic ladder. And we don't want to, of course. Why? Because what might be asked of us if we did? Jesus did more than just teach generosity, he modeled it. And we, as his disciples, are meant to emulate him, not other people, emulate Jesus. So this comes back, Jesus' words come back, to my wealth, not their wealth. Jesus gave not just all he had, but his very life itself, Knowing that his crucifixion was coming, Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15 that the greatest love someone can have is to lay down their life for their friends. And so here's another principle of generosity I'd like to offer you. The question of generosity is not how much must I give, but how much do I believe God has given me? I will be as free with my money in as much as I have allowed God to set me free. As C.S. Lewis says it, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. Friends, how many of us are denying God the gift of giving us our daily bread as we pray? because we don't actually need it. Is God trying to bless us, but he actually can't because the way I live my life is a way of saying, no thanks, I'm actually doing pretty good. Are my hands and is my heart so full with money and stuff that I'm unable to receive the generosity of God? Now, at this point, I wanna name some of what might be happening in the room. Uh, there's a problem with reframing the question from how much, how, how much must I give to how much do I believe God has given me. The problem is not that it's not true. It is very true. I am typically not generous because I either don't believe God's given me what I have, I've earned it myself, or I don't believe God's going to give me more as I have need. The problem is how certain people in God's church have used this question to coerce people into giving. And they do that with two things, bad theology and manipulation. The bad theology, maybe you've heard it, sounds like this, God desires for every Christian to be financially wealthy, or at least well off, and you achieve this by sowing into a spiritual reaping law. $10 today becomes $10,000 in 10 years. If you play the game, then God has to bless you with multiplied resources. And as damaging as that theology is, What's worse is that it looks like pastors owning private jets and mega mansions while they ask their people to give sacrificially so the church can build a bigger auditorium. And the sad result for many is understandably skepticism, shame, and a totally skewed picture of what following Jesus actually looks like. And that is the most dangerous part. The tragic irony connected to generosity is when church leaders use one of the most sacred questions, do you trust God? In a way that shows that they don't or in a way that doesn't require them to. It's as if the people are made to worship God so the leader can worship money. And yeah, that's a bit spicy, but it's true. And I don't want that to produce cynicism. A.J. Uh, Sabota, a Subota, pastor and a scholar, he says cynicism is fermented prophecy. So instead, I want that prophecy, that truth, that true statement, not to ferment into cynicism, but produce compassion. What I mean is this. Of course there are rich church leaders, whether by their congregation or generational wealth, of course there are rich church leaders. Why? Because there are rich people. And like it or not, church leaders are people. (laughs) If it's in you and me, it's in them. And if it's in them, it is in you and me. As Maya Angelou said, nothing human is alien to me. Nothing, no human experience is foreign to my experience. And so in compassion, we look at all of that and recognize that very same drive for self-preservation in me. And it still needs saying. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel and it is not generosity. How do we know this? Because of the fruit that it produces it produces a desire for more and not a contentment with what already is. And Jesus modeled contentment. Friends, remember, sin is when we try to meet our own need, our own way. The prosperity gospel is when we try to build God's kingdom in our own image instead of allowing ourselves to be made in His and so, planting a seed for the future, or $1 today becomes $1,000 next week, cannot be generosity by definition because the focus isn't on giving now, it's on receiving later. The heart posture of generosity says more than simply, I have enough, but God has enough and He really loves us. Now, to be extra, extra, extra clear, neither wealth nor poverty are Christian virtues. I'll say this again. Wealth is not a Christian virtue. Poverty is not a Christian virtue. The virtue is freedom from enslavement to other gods. That's the Christian virtue. So to round this off, I wanna offer our final principle on generosity today, and it is this. Generosity is a foretaste of the kingdom. Part of our creation mandate in Genesis is to rule and reign, to build microcosms and outposts of the kingdom of God here and now. We are living in the now, believing that fully that the not yet is on its way. So what does this look like? Well, we pray and ask God to heal someone because they will be healed, whether now or in new creation. And where the church maintained this conviction, they prayed for healing and built hospitals. We seek healthy relationships between women and men because in new creation, the Bible says, we will co-reign together at equal levels as co-heirs with Christ. And so where the church has maintained that conviction, it has fought for equality for women in things like education and health and representation in church leadership. We seek justice and reconciliation here because in new creation, every tribe and tongue and nation will bow in union as brothers and sisters before the throne of God. And so where the church has maintained this conviction, it has always fought to end slavery and to dismantle racism. So if we engage money and wealth with the age-to-come situation in mind, what do we do? The scriptures... Seem to paint images of the kingdom of God as really rich and full of provision and wealth. Heaven, we're told, is is streets paved with gold, and there seem to be like gemstones and rhinestones everywhere all over the place. So that must be our goal here, right? Uh, Hopefully by this point you're thinking, he probably doesn't think that. I don't think that. Why? Because these images are not a statement about wealth. They're a statement about provision. They're a sign of the abundance and the lack of need that will exist in God's coming kingdom that we get to live into now. Wealth and money will be meaningless and unnecessary. That's what Jesus is getting after. Think about Isaiah 55 with me. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is an image of God's coming kingdom, a place where we will have everything that we need. In his commentary on this passage, Brian Zahn said, it's clear that the exile's home is to be very different from Babylon. For one thing, it runs on an entirely different economy, an economy of generosity, of divestment, not exploitation. Now, I love this, I'm here for it, but if I'm honest with you, it's also very hard for me to really, truly believe that, to let it sink into my depths. And it's been challenging me for a few weeks now as I've been preparing for this. Some of you know we've had conversations. But the message that we get about the kingdom of God is really clear and really simple. There is enough. In fact, in the kingdom, there's always actually abundance. And that is what Jesus modeled, and that is what he lived by, and so that is the foundation on which we build a theology and practice of generosity. In God's kingdom, there is enough. We don't have to preserve ourselves because God will. We are more precious to God, the scriptures say, than the lilies of the field, and they were dressed more radiantly than Solomon, the richest man in the world. So to end, I wanna extend an invitation. As our friend and mentor Gary Bershears reminds us, the opposite of misuse is not non-use, but proper use. So the opposite of the way you and I or other church leaders have misused or even abused generosity is not that we should never give, but that we can give rightly. That we can give with pure motivations and heart postures. And our practice this week in communities will involve a conversation about exactly that. Generosity is about refusing to be enslaved to my money, to trust that the only way that I can actually hold back the worship that my money demands is to give both my money and my worship to God. Generosity is my whole life response to God's generosity. Which is why the early church actually saw a tithe of 10% not as the ceiling, but as the floor. It was the place to begin. So what might it look like for you to live generously? Not to give once, not to give twice, but to make a lifestyle of generosity. To try to give in a way that is similar to how God has given to you. What is the equivalent of your bakery or your milk cart And who are the hungry kids around you in need? Maybe 10% feels like a lot. It's okay. Remember, God doesn't want our money. God wants our heart. Just start somewhere. And give with special attention to God's church and to the poor. So it feels weird for you right now to give to the church. That's okay. Start somewhere else. But give with special attention to the church and to the poor. Do you remember the text we began with? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. These are teachings from Jesus. Generosity is the giving of all that we have, not just our money, but our whole selves, our whole lives, to the only one who is worthy of them, and to receive instead a deeper joy than we ever thought possible, a deeper joy than we could have found on our own.